0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this very special audio commentary track for Wes Craven's 1989 classic, Shocker. My name is Michael Felscher. I'm a DVD producer and filmmaker with Red Shirt Pictures, and we have three separate interviews that I've conducted with members of the crew, including the director of photography, Jacques Haitken, the co-producer and first assistant director, Robert Engelman, and finally, the composer of the film, Mr. William Goldstein. Over the course of the next three interviews, I think you're going to get some very interesting stories on how Wes Craven's Shocker came into being, some stories of the production, and also uh, a good insight as to why this film has managed to endure the test of time over the past quarter century. Cinematographer Jacques Haitkin began his feature film career with Hot Tomorrows in 1977, which also saw the debut of writer-director Martin Brest. He would go on to do two features with classic comedians Don Knotts and Tim Conway with The prize Fighter in 1979, followed quickly by The Private Eyes in 1980. He would tackle science fiction for the Roger Corman-produced opus Galaxy of Terror in 1981, and a few short years later would find himself over at the then-fledgling New Line Cinema, helming the cinematography on the classic A Nightmare on Elm Street for writer-director Wes Craven in 1984. Other films he did at New Line included the first sequel to A Nightmare on Elm Street, subtitled Freddy's Revenge in 1985, as well as the action film Quiet Cool, the horror-comedy My Demon Lover, and the action-sci-fi classic The Hidden for director Jack Shoulder in 1987. After his stint at New Line, Mr. Haken saw himself tackling a variety of genres, including the comedy The Ambulance, the action film Cage, as well as the Wes Craven production of Robert Kurtzman's debut film as a director, Wishmaster, in 1997. Most recently, he's worked as a camera operator and director of photography for the second unit on such films as The Expendables, Captain America The Winter Soldier, and Furious 7, and it is my deepest pleasure to have Mr. Haken here to talk about his work on the 1989 West Craven feature, Shocker. How are you doing today, sir?
1: Very good, sir. Thank you.
0: So I wanted to get a little bit of a background on you. How did you first get interested in cinematography? How did that all start for you?
1: Well, it was when I was but a lad. Um, I grew up, my father was an attorney, but he uh, dabbled in photography, and so I grew up, we had a dark room in our basement, and I watched him shoot and enlarge and develop pictures, and I guess it got into my bloodstream, and I actually started out as a pre-med student, but within uh, the first semester, I d- needed a little bit more art in my life mm-hmm. with my science, and so cinematography was the perfect blend of art and science for me.
0: What were your first jobs in the business?
1: My first job was an industrial film that I shot with my Bolex, which I got when I was in high school. I bought it on uh, whatever Craigslist was back. I guess it was from the newspaper. I found yeah. a sixteen millimeter <laughs> Bolex, a reflex Bolex. I bought it and was playing with it. And then I got a job shooting for, believe it or not, a recycling company that back then it was even wasn't even heard of we're talking 1968 wow that is early for that people were recycling paper and this was an industrial about paper recycling in 1968 talk about being on the head of a curve yeah really really so I shot black and white 16 millimeter with my bolex and uh never looked back (laughs) still shooting to this day
0: did you have a preference for any particular genre even back then or as you've gone along in your career? Do you find that you're drawn to a particular genre more than, say, some others?
1: As a cinematographer or as my passion of what I aspire to? Because those are two different things.
0: Those are two different things. So actually, I would like the answer to both, if you don't mind.
1: Okay, well, sir, I... I always was a fan of Mike Nichols and Woody Allen, the New York intellectuals. So Mm -hmm. someday, I hope, when I grow up, (laughs) like, you know, maybe it's been 43 years now. No, where are we? Maybe in between 40 and 50 years, I'll make it to become a screenwriter, producer, director of films of my heroes like Woody Allen and oh, Sidney Lumet. Oh, yeah. But I was also a Kubrick fan. But, you know, I definitely liked films that were thought-provoking.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, that's what I aspire to. Um, but in terms of shooting movies, quite honestly, for the people that are listening, in the freelance world, you take what you can get and make right. the best of it. So, and I always embraced, the thing is, with horror films, I'm not so much a horror film fan of watching them as much as I am making them, because there's so much custom design work that goes into a horror film, mm-hmm. uh, and back in the days where we were shooting Shocker and Nightmare and Elm Street, everything was done in camera, so all, right. of, the, uh, all of the work had to be uh, pre-visualized, and... The deployment process of how you were going to actually achieve the stuff, because it had to occur in front of the camera for the most part. There was very little post-production the way there is now in films. So we had to figure out ways to do something. That's why makeup effects were all practical. Everything was practical. Everything. You needed to fly people, practical. You needed anything, So we had a, and it was the the fun. There's so much fun. It's like puzzle solving. So it really is. You just dive into it, and it's so many levels of, uh, you know, artistry dealing with makeup and lighting and technical challenges, the engineering challenges, the physical challenges of location. And all those kinds of things that are, you know, a million puzzle pieces that all need to be put together and then put into the framework of budget, of resources, of time. And then, of course, there are personalities involved because there's a number of collaborators. There's art department, director, uh, and so many other people that, uh, you know, get funneled into the process as collaborators. So um, it's just... The process was just so enriching that uh, even though I wasn't a huge fan as a movie goer of horror films, the making of, of them is they're probably the funnest f- films to make because of all the custom design work that went into them.
0: And as a fellow freelancer, let me second your statement that the uh, any paying job is definitely the one that you're the most interested in.
1: Correct. If we're talking to the students out there or any aspiring filmmakers and freelancers, it, that's, that's the life. Yep. You take what you can get. But you make the, the thing is you have to have the attitude of whatever you get, you embrace it and you find joy in whatever work you're doing. And that's really important in the creative and the craft endeavor of filmmaking.
0: So in, uh, in 1984, of course, Nightmare on Elm Street comes out, and it was a game changer for a lot of people in their careers. How did you first meet Wes? Had you met him long before then, or was it really just for Nightmare on Elm Street that you first came in? It was content? Nightmare
1: on Elm Street only. I actually okay. earned that job based on my demo reel. And mm-hmm. then, of course, after he had seen my reel, he we had a personal interview, and uh, and we there was resonance there, you know. Uh, One of the things I think Wes is drawn, was drawn to, and it's still one of the hallmarks of my approach, is that I'm very contextually oriented. I like to look at the story and characters and through line and I drill down very deep on everything And so that when I make decisions on the set about lighting and contrast ratios and the whole overall expression of how I deal with a scene and the, the, all of the through lines, because I have such a holistic approach, I knew Wes was drawn to that. Uh, it, it wasn't as if I baited him or anything. I it was just my, my approach. So that's what drew him to me. And then I met Bob Shea along the way with that, you know, once Wes wanted me on board. And Bob, Shea, and I became very good friends over the years, and Wes too. Wes is still somebody I could pick up the phone and we could spend time with I haven't seen him in a while but you know there's a, a deep bond there on so many levels a friendship level and a creative level
0: I mean yeah because not only did you your fortune association with West that would come into play later on but your association with new line from that point on I mean you came back for Freddy's revenge you did I believe quiet cool and my other demon lover with them and then the hidden of course
1: that's right the the the, the my relationship to new line was tremendous. It was a deep bond. You know, there was a turning point. Before Nightmare on Elm Street was made, Wes and Bob Shea met at my house, and Bob came just hat in hand and said, you guys... You know, if this is the last shot for New Line, New Line was uh, buying stuff like Reefer Madness, which at the time was not as big a hit as it has become, (laughs) and a whole bunch of other smaller films that he was trying to make money, you know, as a distributor and as a producer. And really, he hadn't had a hit, and it was getting very difficult for him financially. Plus, Nightmare on Elm Street, there were a lot of squeezes. I don't know how much you know about it, but there Mm. was a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. And he basically said, if if this film is not successful, New Line is done. So, uh, you know, it was a big pressure. I think from my standpoint, it was like, I don't know why you're telling me this. I don't, you know, I always give 110%. It, you know, I don't need any extra incentive. Right. Uh, uh, and I'm sure Wes was the same way. We were determined to make the best film we possibly could we wanted to entertain audiences and and have a success i mean that's it's in our dna as filmmakers uh but of course the rest is history the thing that was great about new line and the difference is they were very appreciative they treated me well after the fact Mm -hmm. they didn't need to necessarily be nice to me once they had their hit movie but instead they treated me Appreciatively, which is very rare in this mm. business.
0: Well, it's a lot, yeah, it's a loyalty that you don't see very often anymore.
1: Correct, exactly. A loyalty you don't see. And boy, I can tell you, I'm still out there now kicking away. I'm actually on big Hollywood movies now, and it's a cold, cruel world. <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> but I don't have any misconceptions. I mean, that's right. how it yeah, is. That's, I, that's I, the
0: reality know. of the business now. So, yes,
1: it is. It is. So, You adapt, you adjust.
0: So it was interesting to me that uh, you would come back to work with Wes on Shocker in 1989 because Shocker, it was five years since Nightmare on Elm Street. Freddy had blown up big. It changed the landscape of horror, essentially. And now Wes is coming back to do... A film that is, in many ways, a very clever and very over the top satire of the very, very similar material. In fact, the opening of the films are almost identical. In front of Freddie building his glove, we have Horace Pinker building and fixing a tv set in his uh his repair shop so i found it interesting that the film it it i don't know if people really interpret it necessarily as a send-up of nightmare on elm street but in many ways it was was that one of the reasons he reached out to you or how did that come about
1: well he reached out to me because we were we were collaborators and successful collaborators regarding your perception about Uh, what Horace Pinker was. Horace Pinker was, in fact, a Freddy Krueger-type thing. It was a remake of Nightmare on Elm Street, and there was a reason for it because Wes didn't own the franchise. He Mm -hmm. was basically trying to start another franchise. That was his hope, that he'd create a new Nightmare on Elm Street. And, And I saw that straight away, and I actually liked Shocker and and Horace Pinker, I thought it was much darker and you know true evil, uh, but and he, the backstory wasn't as sympathetic mm-hmm. as Freddy Krueger in a way. Uh, you know, it wasn't as involved. It was more straight up. It, it, it was a much more modern approach, modern for '89 anyway. But there's no question that uh, he was trying to make another nightmare on M Street, and I was right there with him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's, it seems only appropriate that it sh- you should be there with him for that.
1: Yeah, no, I, yeah, because um, the thing is, I have so much passion. That's what Wes, and and Wes nurtured that kind of thing. A lot of people, uh, you know, are less than comfortable with uh, collaborators' passion like, Wes was very, he was a, he set a, a tone and an atmosphere that uh, gave us a lot of freedom to be ourselves. Yet at the same time, totally directing and and molding and shaping the vision, uh, but without curtailing you know creative freedom. That's it was such a pleasure, and we were all very committed on that show. Uh, it was a fun movie. Mm-hmm. All, this, all the stuff surrounding his shop in the beginning, they're not that spectacular, but I thought they were very moody and I enjoyed them. The expression of the lighting and just creating a mood with just tone, lighting, composition, camera movement, those scenes mean a lot to me because so much of the impression and the expression that the audience is feeling is coming from the cinematography. So those simple scenes mean a lot to me. Even some of the night exteriors where people are just walking and doing things, the angle of the light, the contrast ratios, those kinds of things. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, why shows don't get successful? You know, now that I've been in the business for 40 years, I've learned that Nobody knows anything about anything. You could right. have a terrible production experience and it could be a huge hit. You can have a great production experience and it'd be a flop. There is no, you know, why Shocker isn't a hit. Well, I mean, it wasn't a hit as big as Nightmare, but let's face it. We wouldn't be having this interview if there wasn't some resonance about Shocker to, to right. remaster it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So there's, it's obviously resonating to some extent with audiences. And I'm happy. I think people who follow the Wes Craven through line will definitely enjoy what Shocker has to offer.
0: Now, on Shocker, what kind of a visual look was Wes going for with this? Because it's an interesting, I mean, it's it's got some very interesting dream imagery that's very similar to a lot of his earlier films including Nightmare on Elm Street but then it's got a very heavy technological bent as well what was the the what were the conversations between the two of you in terms of how you wanted the film to look
1: yeah it was it was a force perspective naturalism so there was always a sense that it could be real it was never so over the top mm-hmm. fantasy you know we didn't use heavy fantastic colors and unnatural colors, but there was always a false perspective to the lighting. The contrast was usually high, which you have in dark films and the and the or or it was appropriately light right before it would get dark as to show contrast. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but it was definitely rooted in a naturalism. I, I think Wes and I both agreed that what make things scarier is when it's real enough that it feels real when you're in the theater to scare Mm -hmm. you. If it feels too artificial, it can be uh, less impactful. So uh, I would say that overall Wes was very firm about not being too much fantasy in Mm -hmm. terms of the overall the fundamental idea was to make sure that w- whatever forced perspective we put into the lighting and the lensing and the and all of the effects and stuff, it still was borderline, still could be construed as part of the real world even though there were all these fantastic things happening.
0: I wanted to talk about your memories of some of the, the cast because the movie has a very eclectic cast. and. A couple of them have gone off in some very interesting directions since then. Uh, Mitch Pileggi, who uh, plays Horace Pinker, and is is actually at the at this moment, uh, filming back on the X Files show again after all these years. What was Mitch like to work with? Because he's he, he was
1: wonderful. Yeah. I loved Mitch. Very committed, um, you know. And it was er- I think it was early in his career. I, I'm not mm-hmm. familiar with what he was doing before that. But um, he was very attentive and, and, and very respectful of Wes and tr- always trying to do a good job. And you saw that, you know, he wasn't that experienced, and yet he, he came off as extremely... Uh, his, his, his performance was very deep and intense. Uh, I loved working with him. He inspired me to, to, you know, I'd watch a rehearsal and then, you know, it would influence the lighting, it would get me going, it would increase my passion. That's what you want, that's how filmmaking is. You know, people sort of get each other worked up. It's, it can get very exciting. Mitch was one of those actors that when I watched his rehearsal before we actually filmed, it, it inspired me. To, and even where I put a placement, the way he'd lift his head and look, he'd keep his head down with his eyes up and I said, boy, that light's going low. I know just where that <laughs> light is going. And, it's, and it, it comes off of a rehearsal, you know, a blocking rehearsal before. So it's very much a real time response mm-hmm. to his expression.
0: How did you work with Peter Berg, who was still you know, at that point a young actor and has now gone on to have a huge career as a director and uh was he someone that even back then you sort of noticed he was paying attention to sort of the behind absolutely
1: was he really absolutely he was terrific he was peter was the same thing even more so than mitch you know and because he was the star of the show he was the main character right um watched him like a hawk and took my cues from him you know uh, that's the thing that i think Wes was drawn to because I really pay attention to context and content. Character, plot, situation, action, conflict. Those are all the things. So when I'd watch rehearsals with Peter, he was just so committed and, and in the moment, all these fantastic things. And that's what it is with making films. We all jump off a ledge and take a journey on this narrative that the author has given us mm-hmm. and wes is the author he's the writer and the director so we we jump off that ledge with him so when i watch peter rehearsing and doing his scenes uh it in- inspires me and gives me ideas it's just it's all one great building situation so yeah peterberg terrific
0: And then there was another, like there's interesting little visual cues that happen during the film because one of the things that Horace Pinker's character does is every now and then he'll hop into other people's bodies and there's, you have one shot in particular which is shared by many actors in the film of the way that Horace Pinker limps away from the camera. Was that deliberately done to make sure that you were always identifying correctly at the right time who Horace Pinker was in any given moment? Because there's one scene in the park where he jumps in and out of people left and right.
1: Correct. Well, that was the cue. The limp was part of... and It, it was part of a, a, a signature for the character so that... Um, People would know. it's it. There's an objective component as well as a subjective one. Obviously, if the character starts limping,
0: <laughs> it's him.
1: <laughs> right. So it's objectively, it's very easy to read. It's a quick deal. Uh, but also, it's sort of a creepy thing, you know. You remember when, when it's a little girl that becomes him. <laughs> he gets inside a little girl. Yeah,
0: that was a great moment.
1: <laughs> very creepy. Very creepy. I love that stuff. And I remember my kids looking at the film and saying that was one of their favorite beats as well.
0: Oh, yeah. When the little girl starts swearing and limping and the whole scene of the park goes on. (laughs) It's funny how some people, I think maybe because of the advertising of the film, that that people were expecting a, a little bit more of a straightforward, hardcore horror movie. But the movie is insanely funny at times.
1: Yes, and that's part of who Wes is. I, you know, th- that's why I think Wes has achieved so much success because he's got that there's a wry sense of humor amidst all of this uh, dark intensity. That's a nice combination. It's a counterpoint. That's part of what Wes does, and it's very much a part of who he is as a person. Although the dark part, not really. He's a very sweet, mm-hmm. kind man
0: now the there's a few scenes that stand out to me obviously i think from a cinematographer point of view would be very interesting to shoot one is uh... pinkers execution and i was curious as to how that was staged and how working with you have in that scene a lot of uh... a little bit of makeup effects work but a lot of practical effects sparks fire that sort of thing what was that like to stage and work with
1: that was fun i mean there was a lot of work put into that the you know obviously setting up the lights you know all of the standard things. You think of the practical matters because there's a, there's an interruption of the le- the electricity when he when he gets electrocuted instead of being standard. You know it's short circuits and there's sparking and all of that. So there's a bunch of uh, set operation deployment of dimmers and the way we cable the lighting and then of course this physical effects with sparking and then certain other lighting units that give a flash, uh, you know, uh, and then certain, the use of multiple camera angles to make sure that we not only give spectacle to it but also include all the characters who are tied into that moment. So there was a a lot of camera angles so that, uh, you know, the journey That was happening could include all of the supporting characters besides Pinker who were all watching this thing and then realizing that uh uh-oh this situation has taken a turn so it's all of the technical things but it's also all of the contextual things of where you put the camera who's included all the reaction shots that had to be achieved because this is a big turning point in the film this basically launches the um, the the extra dimensional component of the film that uh, Pinker takes off on, so it, it was very robust. The thought that went into it, and all of the you know every little detail of wh- who we're going to include and why, mm-hmm. and what it, what the meaning of it is, and where he's going, and the, even the executioner. It was every detail is thought through, and 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 the perspective of every component of it is 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 worked out
0: then there's a there's I mean there's obviously several other scenes that happen during the picture which would be worth discussing but there's one in particular that I've always found just beautifully shot and very moody which is the scene in the uh the water with Camille Cooper where she's first sort of uh, you know she's kind of tormenting him and kind of flowing through the water and it's a really evocative very beautifully done scene I was wondering how what your memories of shooting that were
1: they're very vivid my friend that was an amazing leap of faith for me that was all shot day for night oh and you know in the middle of you know the at los angeles daytime we used uh, a lot of different techniques filtration exposure we also had giant navy foggers to create mood and ambiance, and on a low-budget film, the scale of what we were doing was a little bit over the top. Mm -hmm. But there are some amazing, and again, these are all practical effects. It's all done in camera with filtration, exposure, smoke, composition, uh, polarization on the camera. I mean, it's a, a myriad of techniques with a mission of a certain expression. And that scene, that sequence really has some terrific practical photography in it. I'm very proud of that. I'm glad you cited that because there was a lot of work and planning that went into that. The time of day we shoot each shot because the angle of the light needs to be right to achieve day for night. There's quite a bit to it. There's quite a bit to it.
0: Yeah. What was she standing on in the water to make that movement happen?
1: Those were platforms that were built underneath the water, you know, to make her walk on water. It's not that big a deal, especially today. They do all kinds of stuff like that. But again, these are low-budget movies. These are not Hollywood movies. These were independent films back then. So we, you know... We all had to go out there with tape measures and waders and get in the water and see how deep it was. Was there mud? If we built a platform one night, would it be gone the next day? I mean, this, <laughs> all, the, all the R&D that goes into and all the practical matters of, of sorting all that out and figuring it out and then deciding where the platforms are going to go and what angle we're going to shoot at. You know, again, there's a hundred things like that that all have to be considered, and that's because shot by shot, we figure it all out. And again, of course, the lighting is so crucial, and, and, and the clouds are coming, the sun is going in and out, This and so mm-hmm. in the real time of actually shooting these things, you can't imagine trying to, it's like trying to tame a wild beast to get it all, because you're not just shooting normal day exterior. It's a forced perspective interpretation of daytime that's Mm -hmm. what day for night is it's very complex to shoot day for night
2: now and that's
1: on film that's on film so everything has to be pre-visualized we're shooting and it's a normal day nobody knows what's going it's all on me (laughs) to make it look expressive so that was the good old days where you really had to know your stuff
0: yeah really yeah because you couldn't just say hey let's fix it in post because you may not be able to
1: or, or that, yeah, for sure that, or to, today you'd look at a monitor and go, hey, let's do this, let's right, do that. Right. There was no monitor. There was just me. Not even <laughs> Wes could help me with those kind of things, not a gaff or nothing. It was all on me. That, that's what it was in the old days. Cinematographers had a lot of responsibility, especially in a sequence like that where the whole effect was a photographic in-camera effect, except for the smoke. But even that, I was the one that ordered the Navy Foggers, and I was the one that said, put them here. And it was a big responsibility. So that's a great scene for you to cite, to... You know for me because
2: that well was... it,
0: it's one of my favorites in the movie because it's just it's beautifully filmed and it's very it's not over the top in the lighting it's not like you have a bunch of weird crazy lighting again it's it's very naturalistic but at the same time mm-hmm. just enu- just enough fantasy to make you go away but something's just up with everything here and that's exactly. a that's a that's a tricky balance to find in any movie, but especially one like this
1: yes, yes that's one of the scenes where i i One of the few scenes in my career that I actually feel satisfied with the outcome. I'm always (laughs) criticizing my work, but that's one sequence that I did, I was happy with.
0: Now then, before we get to the the climax of the film, there's a scene where uh, Pinker, in the form of uh, the character's father, chases him up and they're up on top of an antenna. Now obviously that's a set, but that also had to be a very difficult thing to try to film because you want to convey how you know, precarious a position that they're in, but at the same time, you have to still come up with some conventional angles to shoot it from. How was that sequence put together?
1: Practically, we did it in two basic sequences. We were actually up on a building on Hollywood Boulevard with an actual structure with stunt folks. Mm -hmm. So I had to light on Hollywood, the top of a building, the structure, and... We did all of the action you see wide with stunt doubles. Then we reconstructed the tower on a stage, and I had shot background plates of the city behind them, and we shot with rear projection plates uh, all the close-ups and the coverage with the actors on a set piece. Mm on stage. So that's basically it. Um, and it worked great. I mean, you know, you that's again part of what cinematographers do. We film things in a way where you can take two things out of context and if they're filmed correctly and the light's coming from the right place, it all matches. You can cut from the close-up on the sound stage, which is two weeks later with rear projection, to wide angles in Hollywood Boulevard and back and forth so it was basically that i mean there's no other way to film actors you can't put actors up on, on a right. building no, of although not, today no. some you know tom cruise would insist well, that you yeah. get up on the building and do
0: it <laughs> yeah but you know the insurance to cover that was probably bigger than the entire budget of shocker in the first place so
1: <laughs> exactly and tom cruise i you know we're, i'm working on a show right now where we're using a rig that he uh that Uh, was developed for Tom Cruise so he could actually do 105 miles an hour on a motorcycle. Mm. And, you know, the insurance company approved it, but it was an amazing, it took months of R&D to find a a system of putting him on a motorcycle that he could actually, and he insisted. He wanted to do 100 miles an hour, that's it. (laughs) He didn't want to mock it up and do projection. He wanted to actually do the motorcycle. So, uh, the... We didn't have that option.
0: No. Now, the the, the finale of the movie is, is actually one of the most entertaining aspects. I mean, it's basically a chase sequence between uh, Pinker and then uh, Jonathan, and as they're weaving in and out of various television programs and various different realities, and they're jumping in and out of the television set. I mean, it's there's an amazing blend of practical effects. There's, there's just like the, they're crawling out of a real TV set on a set, but then there's bits where they're mixed in with existing programs, and there's photographic effects. I'm assuming there's blue screen, possibly rear projection. How did you film a lot of that and and still be able to judge how it was all going to link together and time together photographically in the end?
1: Well, yeah, you know, it's funny. Now that you're mentioning it, we did a lot of post-production manipulation For those Mm -hmm. sequences, Um, with roto, with rotoing Pinker and separating him out, with uh, sometimes using uh, blue screen, but a lot of times just because of his orange outfit, uh, just roto Roto rotoing him out of shots, which is all a post-production technique, cutting him out of the background and moving him around. there are a combination of many things. We actually have them jumping into empty TV sets, <laughs> and then later the, the screens are put on. Uh, we have them on blue screen stages where they're running through, you know, interacting with what will eventually be live-action programming. Uh, every shot is sort of is storyboarded, So there's no other way to do it. So the whole sequence is pre-visualized in storyboards and in words, beat by beat, mini-beat by mini-beat, and then the description and then through meetings with uh, mechanical effects people, visual effects people, myself, the art department. Every single detail is mapped out at how we're going to do it and then eventually the lighting department comes, gets involved so they know what the physical parameters are. It's just like anything else. You're, you're, you're building something that's uh, very complex and piece by piece, you, you put it all in place. But it starts with uh, you know, Wes's conception, his, his, uh, his vision starts it, and then we all contribute. I mean, for me, I can't remember the specifics, but I'm sure I had a lot of ideas and, and many others contributed little bits and pieces to enhance the thing uh all of course supportive of wes's vision mm-hmm. so he's he's our leader he's our inspiration and then we take it from there but the technical process is storyboarding and re-storyboarding and then um you know meeting after meeting and it, it you see the the film that filmmaking process hasn't changed this right. day i'm working on films in twenty fifteen. It's it's all the same process. It never changes. The whole point is we're staging an event and mm-hmm. taking pictures of it. It's that simple. Right. But what is the event? And that's where the you know the multifaceted breakdown starts to happen. What is the event? What is the context of it? What is the situation? What is the action? What is the conflict? Where are they shooting? Are the walls white, green, red? And just the hundreds, the thousands of decisions that go into creating a world in front of the lens all start falling into place piece by piece, and all the collaborators coming together. That's what makes filmmaking such an exciting endeavor. To this
0: day, (laughs) after 40-plus years, (laughs) I
1: still have passion
0: for it. So discussing the the post-production process, I mean, obviously, you'd be there for the grading and the color timing and everything. And I was curious, uh, with a film like this where there are post-production visual effects that have to be added, how important— was it for you to be there to make sure that that all fit seamlessly and at the end of the day you had a film that had a consistent look to it despite the fact that there were obvious elements that you couldn't know about when you were actually shooting the movie.
1: Well back in those days I pretty much shot all the elements but you're right combining them was definitely uh, a question mark. The way it was handled um, was that during a lot of the compositing I was brought in to when they Back then, everything was done optically. There was no right. computers involved, so there were optical printers, and there were samples done, exposure examples called wedges, where you would take a particular uh, photographic element and give many different um, possible exposures and color values to a series of single frame images, and then I would come in and look and select a certain exposure and a certain color value out of those wedges, and that would direct the post-production people how to expose the composite elements optically. So I was always brought in. It was called looking at wedges. (laughs) And it's funny, to reminisce that now we're talking about something from my way distant past. That technique is gone now. Only the real old-timers know about looking (laughs) at wedges. But that's how it was done. We had uh, photographic elements that were temporarily uh, developed, and there were uh, examples where you'd start from red to Green and blue on the other end, so every, and so it would slowly graduate all the different colors, and then from light to dark, all the different values of light to dark. So every hue and every exposure was an option, and so frame by frame, we'd pick an exposure value and a hue value, and then I'd make a little scratch an X on the film, mm-hmm. and that was the for the frame I wanted to pick, and that's what. Got that's how the post production optical work was done.
0: So, the you we you'd mentioned this before, and we touched on a little bit that the film came out, it didn't do spectacularly well, but it wasn't a flop by any means. But it didn't exactly, unfortunately, there was no shocker to horse, but this was the only horace Pinker movie. Uh, Wes went on to do other things, obviously, you went on to do other things, but the film has still found a continued support all these many years later, and I would argue it's actually more popular now than it's ever been. What do you attribute its longevity to? Why do you think this film uh, has still continued to find support over now many different generations?
1: I think it's the reason is all the things we've been talking about. Number one, starting with Wes's passion and his vision and then all of the collaborators the intensity that we all committed ourselves to in, infuses the project with with power and impact that's what <clears throat> that's what's making the difference it wasn't just a bunch of professionals showing up and performing their jobs we were trying to strive for something uh, that was had a lot of expression to it, and that intensity, that passion, that commitment that energy is almost like uh, an intangible that gets into the project that people feel, and that 's what I think is is that's my belief is what's happening here it's that energy, that creative energy and intensity that is infused in the film it's it's in there and that that's sort of what keeps you going is that it's, that it works that way that and that's what's fun about um, the cinema is you put all that energy and and commitment and passion and the reward is that unlike a play which has all the same elements of commitment and passion but it's gone at the end With film, you're immortalizing all of it. Mm -hmm. So it's lightning in a bottle and it's captured. So that's why film is so wonderful. But in answer to your question, it's all of that human energy that's reaching out to audiences to this day. It's there forever because we were there doing it and the camera captured it.
0: So I guess my final uh, little question to you would be, I mean, obviously here it is a quarter century later. You're still incredibly active in the business you're doing. You've been working on films like uh, X-Men First Class and Captain America, the Winter Soldier, Furious Seven, and you're on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 and Captain America Civil War right now. So it's not like you're sitting around with absolutely nothing to do. I mean, your career has gone on to some really amazing things. Wes is still out there doing amazing work. He's had the scream films since then. I mean, he's, you know, still just as active as ever. But if he were to come to you right now and say, let's do another shocker, let's bring Horace Pinker back, would you be up for it?
1: In a heartbeat. Absolutely. I would give anything to work with Wes. Absolutely. You know, because there's so much joy in working with people you love to work with and to care about something and to be on a project. That's part of what we do. It's like being in the circus or something, it's the process itself has tremendous fulfillment um, and joy for me. The Being passionate about something, caring about something and also the puzzle solving component of it, it keeps your mind busy, it's just, it's a wonderful endeavor. We're, it's art, it's craft, passion, energy, humanity. Filmmaking is just a wonderful endeavor, and I'm so thankful and lucky to be able to keep doing it here at my ripe old age of... <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Jacques, thank you so much for taking time to discuss Shocker with us today. I think fans are going to get a real treat out of hearing all your stories about the production today. Thank you.
1: Okay, great. Thanks, Michael. It's
3: been in the papers, you're a foster kid. He was messing with your mind, That's- Not going
0: anywhere. Robert Engelman has had a long and very interesting career in the motion picture industry. He began his career as an assistant director on such films as Teachers and Pee Wee's Big Adventure, moving on to a very long and successful collaboration with New Line Cinema on such classic films as The Mask, Mortal Kombat, and the original Blade. Recently, his credits include the Dolphin Tale series of films. But back in 1988, he first collaborated with Wes Craven on the film The Serpent and the Rainbow, later working with him again on Shocker. And I'm very happy to have him here today to discuss Shocker and also his uh, association with Wes on that previous film, The Serpent and the Rainbow. How are you, Bob? Doing well. Thank you for inviting me. So I was curious, obviously you had been in the business for a while anyway by the time The Serpent and the Rainbow came up. Was that the first time you had worked with Wes, or did you had, had you known him before that?
3: No, that's the first time I had worked with him. I did work on Nightmare 3, but oh, Wes okay. did not direct that
0: one. And what was your impression of Wes when you first met him? What did you think, uh, uh, what was he like?
3: Wes was terrific. Wes is a real interesting guy because everyone thinks that he would be this weird, whacked out guy because of the movies he makes. And he comes off as really a very sane, normal, compassionate human being, Mm -hmm. which no one believes.
0: (laughs) He comes off like a college professor. Uh, People keep mentioning that, like he should be an instructor or a teacher somewhere.
3: Well, he was actually at one point. I believe he (laughs) was an English teacher at one point. But he's highly intelligent and very brilliant.
0: So on The Serpent and the Rainbow, you are credited as a co-producer and the first assistant director. How did you end up doing both jobs on that movie? Well,
3: I was, I've was i always been kind of a, I don't know what I call it, but I'm more than a first AD. I work very closely with the director and the producers, and they felt I deserved that credit. Mm-hmm. Um, and really helping to further Wes's vision while at the same time being very sensitive to the financial parameters
2: Mm -hmm.
0: now serpent the rainbow was a ended up being a really very interesting and very memorable film and it was successful and kind of rejuvenated wes's career at a point where he'd gone through a couple of experiences that hadn't been that great uh what was the the mood on the set like i mean obviously you're down in on location in haiti for a great deal of it so that had to have provided some very interesting challenges
3: Oh, working in Haiti was extremely bizarre. First of all, there were no telephones where we were, which Mm. is absolutely a unique experience for all of us. And communication was difficult. Haiti is a very scary place. They went around and showed us all the original torture equipments. We went and saw real, quote, zombies, um, Uh all sorts of stories. There was one point where we were in a hospital looking for locations, and Wes looks up and says, that window there, with all the broken panes, that would be a great place to shoot. Well, I'm talking with one of the locals, and I said, Wes, I don't think we want to film up there. And Wes is saying, no, 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 it'd be terrific. It looks so great. And he's going on, and I say, no, I don't think you want to be there. And Wes said, what's going on, Bob? I said, that's the infectious disease ward in Haiti. (laughs) Wes looked at me and said, you know, Bob, I don't think it's the perfect location for us right now. And then we had a whole bunch of experiences. There was one point where we were filming um, in the middle of nowhere, and we had the military as our police force. And they basically said, where you're filming, we cannot really protect you. Mm -hmm. And we had had some issues the day before where we had near riots and... At one point, I had to put the whole company behind a stone wall as I saw kids picking up stones. And mm. we bolted Haiti a day early. But oh, really? we got phenomenal things there. And it was a e- very exciting and visual place. But it was also a very scary place to work. It did not have a strong infrastructure, it did mm. not have, um, it was very much like the Wild West out there.
0: Right, right. And so I was curious as to what you observed about how Wes directs and how he works with his actors and his crew, especially in a situation like that where you have you're not in the comfortable confines of a studio in America or an established location with an infrastructure. You're dealing with a lot of wild uncontrollable elements. How did he handle those challenges down there?
3: Wes really works well in these bizarre situations. He's very good at adapting and making changes. And he's incredibly calm. It doesn't matter what's going on. He keeps a very level head. And so he was great to work with in that regard. Um, And he does some very interesting things. He would have what he called a fear chart, which, which was the whole movie. And he would figure out when he needed a scare, when he could compromise and make it a little less scary, and where he really needed to go for it. And as he used to say, there's nothing scary about the day. The real scary stuff all takes place at night. So there were certain scenes he would adjust and would allow us to shoot in the day because it was easier, cheaper, etc. And there are other ones where he said, nope, we have to go for it here. Mm-hmm. And he was right. And um, the actors really liked Wes, and he really worked well with them. Um, and he was just very, very good with the performances.
0: Now, on this film, it was obviously this was distributed by Universal Pictures, but was that a, a pickup situation or was he making this for another production company? And how much of a presence uh, did the, the essentially the money people have on set? Were they even there?
3: No, the money people were not really on set. We had our producers, but we, we did not have the typical studio people. Perhaps they weren't in love with coming to Haiti, well, but yeah, right. uh, they were not around. <laughs>
0: So in the end, did he have a pretty good amount of creative freedom on that movie?
3: Yes, and we had our producers there, but Wes is very collaborative, very communicative, and so the producers always knew what Wes was trying to accomplish, and they were all very supportive of Wes. And they liked what he was doing because he was delivering the goods. Mm-hmm.
0: The film, as I recall, ended up being financially quite successful and it actually got some good notices when it came out. And, the, the, of course, the marketing campaign played up uh, his connection to A Nightmare at Elm Street big time because Nightmare at that point was only four years old. Did you feel that Universal did a good job in, in putting the film out there?
3: Yeah, I thought they did, but I also felt this film was quite unique and different mm-hmm. than The um, Nightmares, and it really was much more than a horror film. It had relationships in it, and it was a little bit more based into a real world than the Nightmare films. Mm -hmm. Um, But I thought they did a great job on marketing it, and the proof is it was successful.
0: Now, one year later, uh, Wes enters into a deal with Alive Films, uh, which was Shep Gordon's company. And by that point, Shep had already done two previous features with uh, fellow uh, horror filmmaker John Carpenter and this was the first one that Wes was doing uh, and they, did they approach you about coming back to work on Shocker Is that pretty much how, was it pretty much that simple
3: yeah well Wes asked me to come back because we had such a good experience on Serpent and the Rainbow and um, I jumped at the opportunity to work again with Wes and Shocker was really you know it was a different type of horror film Mm -hmm. It had horror. It had comedy. So, it was a real challenge. Also, at that point in time, we were taking visual effects into a whole new level and direction than whatever had been done before. And visuals is what I'm all about. So, I found it a very exciting challenge and opportunity.
0: Now, Shocker is, like as I mentioned, it was for uh, Universal, ended up distributing it, but it was really an independent production. What was the producer's presence on the set for this movie? I, from what I understand, that Wes was very much left alone on both the pictures he made for Alive. Was that the cases you observed on Shocker?
3: Absolutely. Even more so, um, which is why, I, between Wes and I and the other producers, they really allowed us to run the show.
0: Mm-hmm. And
3: we really never saw any of the Universal people. We, and we never saw any of the people um, from Alive while we were filming. They occasion, that's not true, actually. Occasionally, someone from Alive would come down for a few hours here and there, but they mm-hmm. were a very small presence on the film. Okay. Much less than any of the other studio shows I've ever done.
0: Now, how involved were you in the casting process for the movie? Um,
3: I sat in on some of the casting sessions, but that was really up to Wes.
0: Okay. So I wanted to talk about the cast members a little bit here and your memories of them and, and just kind of get an overall view for how you felt they interacted with Wes and it and how they approached their, their particular performances. Uh, in the role of Horace Pink, you have Mitch Pelleggi, who at that point had been around and had done some work but had not really kind of crossed over to mainstream attention yet. What was Mitch like to work with?
3: Mitch was unbelievably fun and fabulous. Mitch was this guy who was such a sweetheart and then you'd roll the cameras and this cold evilness would just come out of every pore of his body. And um, I had a few funny experiences with Mitch. My daughter came to the set one day and she was like four or five and she was in love with the makeup and my wife was all terrified that she'd be terrified, you know, seeing this um, guy in this hideous makeup and he would laugh and joke with her and it's like she never saw the makeup i couldn't understand it (laughs) um but he was he was a wonderful actor to work with and like i said when you turned on the camera all of a sudden it was like a disconnect from this normal great guy until someone who just oozed from every pore of his body this cold-hearted evilness.
0: Now, the intent obviously seemed to be that Wes was trying to, if not to phrase it exactly this way, but he was trying to create a new Freddy Krueger because he didn't necessarily have a creative or a financial interest in Freddy anymore, which was over at New Line. Did he ever discuss about his ideas of trying to creates sort of a new recurring character and also how he wanted to make Horace Pinker distinctive and different from Freddy?
3: Well, he was very different than Freddy, obviously, but I think at that point in time, all these movies were always set up that they had the potential to be franchises. Mm -hmm. Every movie, going back to, you know, even Carrie with the hand coming up at the end. Mm -hmm. Um, And certainly that was part of the appeal for Alive and for Wes and for everyone else.
0: And so moving on down the the line of the cast, we have uh, in the role of Jonathan, we have Peter Berg, who was a young actor at the time and has gone on to become one of the big directors in Hollywood. And I was curious about not only your memories of working with Peter, but did you see any signs even back then that Peter was interested in what was going on behind the camera, that he showed any sort of interest in directing even way back then?
3: Well, as an actor, you obviously are self-directing yourself a lot. You're bringing a lot to the table.
0: Sure. And the mm-hmm. one
3: thing I remember about Peter is he had fabulous instincts. Mm-hmm. And he really knew how to take that character and not make it feel real and not make it feel so crazy. And you've got to remember, this was a very tricky show right. in that the first half is like hardcore terror and horror with the murders. And then towards the end, there's kind of this humor that's added, mm-hmm. and it's a very fine line to cross, and I thought Peter did a fabulous job with that.
0: Well, that was one thing I, I've commented on several times with the movie in that I think some people from the onset, and maybe it was some of the, because of the advertising or some of the expectations going in, people wanted to take this movie a lot more seriously than it wanted to take itself because it's a it's a unbelievably funny movie at points i mean you can't have the spirit of a character hopping into this uh, little girl who then limps away while swearing at a park and not think that the movie is has got a, a very very you know broad sense of humor at times did you feel that at the end that maybe audiences at the time just took this movie a little too seriously from the onset well I think
3: the hardcore audience got it. I think that what you're describing is the way how they marketed it and that goes back to who Wes Craven is mm-hmm. and they were playing off the Freddie images. But this film was always designed to go into a different direction and push the comedy and when I saw this film in theaters, which I saw many, many times with different audiences, The hardcore audience, the hardcore horror audiences got it. They were laughing at the right moments, but they were also scared at the right moments.
0: Right. So how much of a budget did this movie have? Do you recall?
3: I don't recall, but I do remember it was done on the cheap. Mm -hmm. We were filming in warehouses in downtown L.A. Mm -hmm. Um, The crew was a new line crew, which means that they were cheap. Right. Um, no one was making a lot of money, and we were pulling out all the practical effects that we could possibly do. We were working silly hours in those days, and so it really was a lower-budgeted movie, and that's what all those horror movies were in those days.
0: Right, right. Now, aside from the the climax of the film, which I'll get to a little bit later, I was curious about what scenes from the first half or the first like two-thirds of the picture that really stand out to you because you have the point you know there's a couple chase sequences there's uh, horace pinker's lair with all the televisions there's his execution there's the scene where you know jonathan's girlfriend's in the lake and he, she appears to him and there's a lot of really evocative and very very interesting imagery and some very complicated setups what which ones of those stand out to you as being particularly memorable or complicated to pull off
3: Well, not being complicated, but just in terms of pure performance. When he is doing his actual killings, it was so cold and brutal Mm
2: -hmm. that
3: it really gave a chill. And when you don't really know what he's up to, for example, in his lair with all the TVs, when he's behind that trap door, that was one that scared me. (laughs) And just watching it made me very uncomfortable. In terms of production in those days, having all those TV monitors having people come in and out of tvs that was all new technology in those days and it was all very tricky um we had a very good dp by the name of jacques haken Mm -hmm. who's done a lot of horror movies actually did the first nightmare and um really was very good at this but we were breaking new ground and part of that was always a challenge because when you do that you really don't know how it's going to come off and it's not like you could see it. Because in those days, we're shooting everything on film, and it is a long time later before you see the results. Right. And just showing Horace Pinker as he turns into a video kind of creature Mm -hmm. was a challenge, and you didn't know how hokey or kooky it would be. It was kind of along the same lines when I did The Mask, where we didn't really know We would shoot Jim, and we really wouldn't know what the end result would be or how good it could be.
0: Now, in terms of, I mean, we might as well discuss the, 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 the finer points of that last 20 or so minutes because you have characters leaping in and out of television sets, which is obviously done practical just as they emerge and come into other realities. But then you have them blending with existing programs. You have photographic effects. And from what I understand, uh, the visual effects on this film were not only complicated and tricky because of a low budget, but that they're, they were running very, very late and very close to the wire in terms of getting done at times. How complicated was it to coordinate all that?
3: Well, the effects were very difficult to pull off because a lot of them had never been done before. We were doing them for very little money and we had a very tight schedule. And so it was very much of a challenge. And we didn't know how good they would come off because in those days we were shooting in film. Everything needed to be processed through a lab. It wasn't like the digital world is today where you can get almost instant results or at least get a sense of it. So it was very much of a challenge.
0: Now, since you're credited as a co-producer and a first AD, I was wondering if maybe you could define for the, the people listening exactly what the roles of a first assistant director are, because I don't know if a lot of people are aware of just how much responsibility the first AD has on a set, because anything that can go wrong and does go wrong ends up at your desk and you're responsible for so much of the coordination of every single take and everything that's going on around you. If you could talk about your role as a first AD on this film and, and how it played into the overall uh, scope of the production. Okay, as a
3: first AD, um, I was responsible for scheduling the show. I was responsible for managing it day to day. I was responsible for running all the elements. And you got to remember in a film like this, the coordination is extremely complicated. You had a blend between the visual effects and the practical effects. And then you also had the actors and the special makeup. And all of these things needed to be coordinated and timed, always with the sense of what the costs are and doing everything you can to reduce it. And all of this needs to be done with understanding what Wes's image is and what he's trying to accomplish so I could be sensitive to that, so I could help Wes to further his image in this movie. Um, and it was all extremely complicated. I also, as an a, as assistant director, you're involved with directing all the background and you're basically the project manager on a day-to-day basis and as a co-producer, that puts added pressure to be very responsible for the financial end as well.
0: Well that, that brings up an interesting point because as a yeah, you're right, as a producer you have to watch out to make sure you stay on schedule and keep this thing moving forward. But as a first A D, you're there as the director's right hand man essentially to help fulfill his vision. Do the role as a a first idea and a co-producer, do they ever not mesh? Was it often difficult to balance those two roles on a production? Maybe not even this one in particular, but just any production where you had to do both. Oh,
3: absolutely. Absolutely, because there are times when the director wants to go into a direction that I may not agree with, in which case the producers need to get involved and we need to discuss it. And there are certain times where we could convince the producers that this is a time to push the budget or to to say we will save the money in other places because what always needs to be remembered at the end of the day, we are not shooting a movie, I'm sorry, we are not shooting a budget, we are shooting a movie. Mm -hmm. So we are achieving nothing if we bring the film in on budget, but the movie's no good. So the goal is to take Wes's vision and try to make it work within the financial parameters and Wes was very good in terms of working with that.
0: Mm
2: -hmm.
0: did the film have any problematic I mean obviously the visual effects were one thing but were there any scenes in particular that were very difficult to stage because of locations or the sets because I mean there's there's moments where characters are way up on an antenna in one particular scene I mean there's a couple chase sequences I mentioned the scene in the lake in particular uh, must have had some logistical challenges which ones uh, can you talk about that you recall
3: well one of the ones that was the most challenging that you brought up was the tower. Um, mm-hmm. We were in Hollywood, we were on top of a building, and it was some of it was so dangerous with the actors that we to, that we recreated the tower, put it on stage, and used blue screen for mm-hmm. some of it when you saw um, the father and Peter climbing up the ladders and those sort of things. Um, and so it was really this blend between stunt work, what the actors could really do on the practical location, and what we did on stage. And we had to marry all of these in a seamless way. And that was very much of a challenge. And we were way up on top of this roof where getting equipment and everything up there was extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. It was a teeny stairway. It was never designed for a lot of people up there. So access was tough and we always had to be very careful because safety is obviously a major concern. And so Wes really needed to plan and map out every single shot in tremendous detail.
0: Speaking of that scene, there was another actor I wanted to ask about. He's a great character actor. and a lot of stuff I really like. Michael Murphy, uh, who played the, Jonathan's father. What were your memories of working with him?
3: Oh, Michael's an old time pro. He would just nail it. Um, And, you know, it was fun, because there were times when, for example, when he becomes pinker, you Mm -hmm. see that little look in his eye, and he gives that little smile, and he just knows how to play those moments. So he was a hoot. Um, Very professional, and great fun to work
0: with. And then the lead actress from the film, uh, Cammie Cooper, uh, she has an interesting role in this movie in that she's... She's ostensibly a victim at the beginning, but then she comes back to essentially sort of lead Jonathan along in his quest to defeat Pinker. She has a very kind of kind of turns the the standard sort of screen queen thing on its head here and gives her a much more proactive and much more forceful presence in the movie. What were your memories of uh, her being cast and working with her? Well,
3: she was great, but you are correct. Is kind of what Wes did that was so gutsy is he kills off his main character in the first part of the movie, which is something you never expect. Or you expect her to come back as, you know, a major player, which he really doesn't. And my hat is off to Wes for taking those sort of gambles. But she was great to work with, but she was kind of like the spiritual character in the movie who Mm. guides Peter through all this. And she was great fun. And I remember when we got her all bloody for the first time when she comes back out of the bathroom and uh, you know Wes is going no more blood more blood
0: (laughs) (laughs) that sounds about right Uh, I was curious also about I mean you just brought something up because at the time uh, the Motion Picture Association of America was extremely hard on horror films it seems like there was a good six or seven year period there where they wouldn't let anything through even the major studio stuff was getting chopped up all to hell and this film from what I understand suffered that fate in a couple scenes as well Uh, what did you observe about what the movie had to go through in terms of its battles with the MPAA
3: well I w- that really happened much more in post, but I was very involved with a movie, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, where we went through that process. Right, yeah. Where we ended up pulling frames out, trying to get it to go through and get the approvals that we needed, and they were just brutal with us. At that point, I think it was... There was Black Rain, or there were some studio pictures that had things that were much worse than our movie. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Because they were big studio movies with big actors, they didn't get the sort of um, negative scrutiny that we got. But we, on our film, we just started pulling out frames at a time, and we would submit it over and over again. And finally, they let it go. But really, at some points, we didn't change a thing, and we would just show it to them over and over again. (laughs) So it was kind of funny. But... um, they were brutal, and in theory, at that point in time, they were not allowed to say no just on the title of a movie or the subject matter. Mm-hmm. And when we walked in, they looked at us and said, "There's no way we're going to let this film go." <laughs> so, I mean, they were very tough, and uh, I thought they were very unfair in those days.
0: Yeah, now it seemed like they were especially. I mean, and it was also it seemed a very strange double standard if you do it in a film directed by Wes Craven, you're going to get clipped. If you're doing it in a film called The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you're going to get clipped. But if you do it in an action movie directed by Ridley Scott with Michael Douglas in the lead role, you can do whatever the hell you want.
3: Oh, you get away with murder then. But if you notice in our movie, you seldom see a knife penetrating skin, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Um, And that's where Wes Craven was good at it. I mean, If you go back to Psycho, if you really look at the books where they show Psycho frame by frame, the knife never penetrates skin, even though everyone will swear it does in those shower scenes.
0: Yeah, no, Wes is very good with that. He actually does a, in shocker, the the movie feels more violent in the end than it really is anyway.
3: Yes, it does. And if you look at it frame by frame, you'll be shocked at how unviolent it is. And Wes is just really good in the editing room.
0: Actually, the the most disturbing bit in the entire film is when he bites the guard's lip. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> and that's the one I can't watch still. It's like everything else. I mean, the brutal murders and all the horrible other stuff, but I can't watch that one part. And that's in the movie. They didn't really cut that back at all. If they did, if they did, I can't imagine what they could have taken out.
3: Yeah, but also, you know, it had a cartoony effect, the way it stretched out.
0: Yeah. You yeah.
3: know, that was one of the things that... The way Wes got that through is he didn't make it that realistic look of ripping the skin off and blood flying. It it was stretched out almost so the audience actually laughs at that when you see it. Mm -hmm. They laugh because they're scared and nervous. Right, right. But it's not like that complete terror moment.
0: Now, were you? we touched on post-production a little bit. Were you there for post-production, or had you already moved on at that point?
3: No, I had moved on at that point.
0: So when did you first see... The film, the final movie.
3: Well, Wes brought me in for several of the screenings um, mm-hmm. before it was completed. So I saw a bunch of them towards the end.
0: What did you think of it? What was your overall impression of the film?
3: Oh, I thought Wes delivered the goods. I liked it, and I I thought it was... I thought it was a real different kind of take between the blending of comedy and horror, um, which I got a kick out of. And I thought that the way how it starts off as one movie and kind of switches to the other was, was fun. And it really, in a way, kind of mellowed out all the horror, so you didn't walk out feeling all nervous and crazy the way how you feel in some of the movies. You kind right. of walked no. out laughing, going because it just gets absolutely absurd at the end. <laughs> it does.
0: No, you know, I mean, It's it does. kind of
3: like Jurassic Park in the sense that however violent it gets— it's you know it's ridiculous at the end of the day,
0: right? I mean, at the end of the, I mean, he's got the remote control and he's flipping Pinker all around the room and and all this, the the whole bit at the end there is immensely creative. They're hopping out of old sitcoms and you know, footage from uh, nuclear explosions and stuff. I mean, it's really at that point if you're not able to kind of just relax with a little bit, it's a great catharsis at the end of the picture.
3: And the way how he cuts in, you know people in the car and, you know, Peter's pounding on the door and they don't see him. It's Mm -hmm. a lot of comedy. And then there's a lot of winks for those people who don't pick up on it. You have this kind of crazy religious character who's Timothy Leary.
0: Yep. (laughs) So the movie was released in 1989. It had a pretty solid marketing campaign I mean Universal really put a lot of effort into it but as we kind of touched on earlier they tended to sell the movie much more as a straightforward horror experience they really didn't play up the comedic aspects of it at all and I'm curious as to your thoughts as to whether that not, if not necessarily backfire, because it's, it's hard to, it's easy to play armchair quarterback and say, well, they could have done this and they could have done that. But did you feel they put their best foot forward and at the end it was just a film that for whatever reason just didn't find its audience at the time?
3: I think the the marketing release plan failed in a couple areas. But the biggest one is they didn't really market the fact that this was a unique sort of movie, that this was a different movie. Mm-hmm. And they appealed to the hardcore horror audience, but they didn't take advantage of a newer audience that you know where the humor would be much more appealing so I agree with you I think they missed the boat a little bit
0: yeah because at the end of the day you know you're telling people or hardcore horror audience that uh yeah there's a new film from uh, Wes Craven coming out they've already bought their ticket they don't need to be sold to a large extent
3: yeah and you know it is a different sort of movie and if you just want a complete slasher movie then this is a film that you will not be satisfied with. Mm -hmm. It's got an intellectual side. It's got, as you've said and I've said, it's got a lot of humor to it. And it also has a lot of tongue in cheek. It's laughing at itself.
0: I mean, the scene in the park where he jumps in and out of different people, including the little girl, that scene, I remember when I saw that in the theaters, people were howling at that moment. I mean, they couldn't believe what they were seeing.
3: Yeah, I mean, jumping in and out of people was fine. Something we've actually kind of seen before. But when all of a sudden he jumps into the little girl and then, you know, jumps into the mother, and, you know, it's 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 so ridiculous and funny, you know. And the little girl is sitting there in the um, in the earth moving equipment, chasing him, <laughs>
2: yeah. like, well, you know,
3: cussing yeah. him out. That was great fun. And you've got to take that with the you know, you've got to see that as a bit of humor.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, if you're taking that seriously, then come on. Uh, so the movie comes out it did okay as I recall it wasn't a a, a flop or anything but it just did kind of okay and uh, obviously there would have been some intent as we previously discussed about this being an ongoing potential franchise some additional shocker films was there any discussion after that of possibly doing another one or was it pretty much dead in the water at that point
3: I did not hear any discussion about it you know you only get franchises when something is a serious hit
2: Mm-hmm.
3: I mean, there are a few exceptions, but not too many.
0: Right. And after that, did you work? Did you come close to working with uh, with Wes again after that point, or had you already moved on? Because it wasn't long after that. I mean, you went on to, I think Chainsaw Three must have been right after this for you. No, Chainsaw
3: then... Three. Yeah, yeah. I went on to do. I ended up starting to work with New Line for a long time. Right, right. And New Line kept me going from project to project, and I had a very good relationship for a good number of years there.
0: Did you keep in touch with Wes over the years?
3: No, I kind of lost contact with him. I did run into him one day at an airport. It was kind of amusing. We're all of a sudden in our TSA line together, and he was off for one of the previews for one of the screams.
0: Oh, okay. I was curious as to your thoughts on Shocker now all these years later. I mean, the movie is, I think, inarguably more popular now than it's ever been. It has continued to find... Fans with the the newer generations that have come along. And in in many ways, it's, I think, certainly a product of its time, but with the technological bent that it has, it still plays for the generation of today. They can still understand what Wes was going for here. Do you think the film has aged well, and and why do you attribute the film's continued success? Well,
3: I think the first portion still holds up. You see a lot of these movies that feel dated. This one still scares the heck out of you in the first half. And the second half, if it was done today, they'd be jumping in and out of computer screens. But it's kind of the same concept. And Wes used TV and electricity. So it still kind of holds up. You just switch it over to computers. And I think audiences now like the fact that there's humor in it. They, they get a kick out of it that it's laughing at itself. Because if it took itself seriously, it would just feel dated at this point.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, your career has gone off into some very different directions. Like I mentioned, you had a very long association and very successful one with New Line, and you've done the, the two Dolphin tail films recently. I was curious as to whether or not you would ever get back into doing more genre films, and if Wes Suddenly, just called you up tomorrow and said, "Hey, Shocker Two or a Shocker remake? We're on for it. Would you Would you be interested?"
3: Oh, I would jump at the chance to work with Wes again. He is great fun to work with, and he really is one of the masters of horror.
0: So, what are your final thoughts on the on the Shocker experience and working with Wes? Not really, just sort of working with Wes at that particular period of your career, because you did Serpent and Shocker back to back, and and then obviously, you know, you had a, an association that has. Managed to stand the test of time. People still talk about these movies. What did that that experience mean for you? Um, it's one of
3: those films that I feel very proud of. Felt very good that I did that film. I mean more recently, obviously I've done more family fair movies. Mm-hmm. And horror's kind of changed a bit. It's um it still kinda of stayed in the low budget world for a lot of it. And there's a few people out there, James Wong and John Leonetti and some of the other people who are starting to take horror in new directions. Mm -hmm. And I'm really looking to see how that'll work. And I guess one of the things that has always interested me and one of the things that is one of my strengths are visuals. And horror Mm -hmm. has always been one of those places where the CGI has been pushed to the limit, where it started off with opticals and practical work. And horror has really kind of taken the visuals in new directions. And that to me has always been a challenge and a big appeal.
0: Well, Bob, thank you very much for taking your time to discuss uh, your members of Working with Wes on uh, Serpent and especially Shocker today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You
3: got it. And good luck. <laughs>
0: William Goldstein has seen his musical career evolve in many ways over the years, beginning in the mid-1970s with his time as a recording artist, composer, and producer at the legendary Motown Records. He would also compose the Celebration Overture for the National Symphony in 1976. And in the 1980s, he scored the music for the Fame TV series. He would make his mark in the emerging electronic world of composition with the first completely computer-sequenced direct-to-digital score for the television event Ocean Quest in 1985. He has composed the feature film scores for Chuck Norris's action classics An Eye for an Eye and Forced Vengeance and the comedies Up the Creek and Hello Again. In addition to his professional activities in music and film, Mr. Goldstein has become a founder of the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles and is a member of the Music Branch Executive Committee of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. And it is my pleasure to have him here now to discuss his work composing the score for Wes Craven's Shocker. How are you, sir?
4: Fine. Very happy to be here, Michael.
0: Now, I covered a little bit of your background already, but I wanted to go back even further and and talk a little bit about how you became interested in performing and writing music and who were your early influences that kind of shaped your interest in the field in the first place?
4: I think you're born into it, Michael. As a matter of fact, I know you're born into it, uh, so it's just there. I mean, uh, I've never had a real life. Um, I'm, I'm told that I... Well, first, my, I grew up in a non-musical home. My parents uh, didn't have a piano, but my dad was in the hotel business. And during the summers, we lived in the summer hotel in Belmore, New Jersey, where there was a piano in the ballroom. Hmm. And little Billy, about three, four, used to go over and start picking out things. And by the time I was eight, I could go to the movies and come back and play scores I heard, or at least the themes from these scores. And my hmm. parents finally decided to buy me a piano. Hmm.
0: So did you have any particular desire in terms of which direction you wanted to go in music? Was it more of a sort of contemporary music? Or did you have an interest in feature film scores even back then as primarily what you wanted to get into?
4: Well, I think that movie scores always were a very big influence on me. I loved going to the movies. I always came back, as I said, and I would play themes that I remembered. And um, since there wasn't a lot of concert music being played in my house – I mean, my mother listened to light classics on the radio. Uh, film music was most of my exposure in addition to uh, pop music. Um, the idea of actually earning a living as a composer didn't really occur to me till my second year in college. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, were there any composers in particular who you kind of, not necessarily emulated, but who you found sort of a, a musical kinship, as it were, that ones that had come from before you or even some of your contemporaries?
4: Well, um, yes, of course. Um, uh, and they're they're all, all all over the place. There are many, many influences. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, when I was uh, growing up and going to the movies, whether it was a score by uh, Dmitri Tiamkin or Victor Young or mm-hmm. Max Steiner, mm-hmm. or any of those guys, I can still sit down and play the scores for. Uh, uh, or themes from a lot of movies I heard when I was uh, very very young uh, you know songwriters like Sammy Khan uh, etc. Mm-hmm.
0: Now with feature film composition when did you first get your your kind of your toe in the water so to speak what was the first thing that you scored was it a TV film or was it a feature film
4: Well it was a feature film When I got out of the Army, and I was composer-in-residence for the United States Army Band mm. during the Vietnam War. Mm. Um, I was signed to Columbia Picture Screen Gems in New York, and um, that was the end of the golden age of songwriting. Carol King was there, mm. um, and Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, Carol Bear, Sager, whatever, and uh, they recommended me for my first movie, which starred uh, Jackie Mason and was called The Stoolie. Mm. Uh, and worth a listen. It's a beautiful score that was influenced by a couple of people, including Charlie Fox, who's now one of my, and has been for many years, a very dear friend.
0: Now, I had brought this up in your intro, and as we get into the 1980s, you ended up doing pretty much all of the music for the famed TV show, and I was interested in how... Working on a TV show different than working on feature films because you did pretty much everything on Fame, didn't you?
4: Yes. Uh, well, almost everything. We we uh, we took in songs that came. So I wrote some of the songs on Fame, but but my primary job was to do the underscore, dance music, the music the kids were playing, uh, and then they had uh, a gentleman Barry Fosman whose whose job was to produce the the one or two songs that they might have on an episode. Mm-hmm. And those songs came from everywhere. Every music publisher submitted them. So if I had time while I was doing the score for an episode, uh, I would, uh, you know, take a shot at writing one of the songs, and a, a number of my songs did get used. The The, the one that uh, I think has gotten the, the biggest recognition was um, A Special Place, sung by Debbie Allen. Oh, okay. And I also released finally an album of uh, music I did for Fame. Uh, got permission to do that a number of years ago.
0: Did you find composing for a TV series to be a very difficult thing? In that there's such a time constraint, you have. Yes,
4: to- yes. Well, it's very, very interesting. First of all, I never had any interest in doing a series, but as you can imagine, Fame is a very, very um, captivating uh, show for a composer. And the what happened here was. Uh, they had hired somebody to do the first three scores of the series and they didn't like the music so I was brought in to uh, replace those three shows in ten days and uh, they loved what I did and then they asked me to do the show and I said well um, I'll, I'll, I'll help you out I'll do another episode uh, or two while you're looking for somebody but it's not really what I want to do mm-hmm. and um, I was getting such incredible feedback every time I did another episode. They said, well, would you do just one more, one more? And I ended up doing 48 shows. Now, what was very interesting, uh, at that time, I was still trying to do, whenever possible, all my own orchestration. Mm -hmm. And um, I think I did the first 10 shows on my own. And then they did an episode that had a ballet number in it. And the writing schedule was only four days. You had four days to write a, a score. And I knew that that ballet would take me four days, so I um, had the good fortune of meeting someone who's had quite a career, scoring the Simpsons and whatnot, Alf Clausen. Oh Alf, sure,
0: yeah.
4: Alf started orchestrating for me, and um, I'd have him come over, and I would do the whole show in a in, in an hour. You know, I just I sit down and do my instant composition thing, playing against picture. Put it on a cassette tape, and he would take it home and orchestrate it. And the first couple of shows, he brought the orchestrations back, and I made little changes. And once he picked up my style of orchestration, I didn't even have to do anything except, you know, go to the session and, and conduct the score without even looking at it. Oh, okay. And and, and then I just started focusing on uh, a big dance number or something, and orchestrating those, and letting Alf do uh, the rest of the show as an
0: orchestra. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Yeah,
4: it, w- it was great. But it was, yes, those were very grueling shows. It was a four-day writing schedule.
0: Now, moving back to your, your feature film uh, career, we had uh, discussed The stoolie already, but then there are a couple other scores before Shocker that uh, I wanted to ask a couple of questions about, just because I find them, they're very interesting films, and I would just like to know your experiences on them. And uh, one in particular is the Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings back in 1976. Now, I would I have to assume that because of the the association you have with Motown, that is why you were chosen for this particular project. Is that pretty much accurate? Yeah, that
4: that that was def that was definitely it. Otherwise, they would have hired a 70 year old uh, black man to, to <laughs> do the score instead of a 30 year old uh, Jewish white guy who had to spend a lot of time listening to 30s jazz. Um, and that was that was an incredible score and stands out uniquely in my career. I love that score. Um, it was a uniquely recorded score as well because I I wrote out a lot of stuff, and the band that we put together. We had a budget for forty musicians, but we ended up doing it with basically uh an enlarged dixieland band but we had double players we had the players who could read and then we had the players who didn't read Hmm. but were great jazz improvisers uh trumpet player teddy buckner um and uh, a few others but that was you know if you look at the personnel on that band uh, on that album that was a really incredible album and it still sounds great i was really proud to be uh, Part of that, privileged really. Hmm.
0: And then you did three very uh, interesting action films, almost back to back: Force Five, and then two Chuck Norris films: An Eye for an Eye and Forced Vengeance.
4: Right. And
0: right. I was curious as to what your experiences scoring those movies were like, because I I can see that there's a couple people probably connected to a couple of those movies, but did one lead into the other naturally, or was were a couple of them kind of unconnected?
4: Uh well I for and I I think came first, and forced vengeance came last and um two of them came came back to back and I actually had to do both of them within a month and that's that's oh. what I was referring to earlier where I had a ton of orchestrators, and we uh, did both of these scores, and neither producer was aware that I was hired to do two scores in the same four week period oh. <laughs> Uh, and they they both came out okay, um, uh, well actually. Mm-hmm. And I've I've uh, started licensing back the soundtrack rights to most of my uh, movies and and uh, have been releasing them so all of those scores are available.
0: Oh, that's cool. And did you enjoy working on an, on action films? Is that something that you wanted to do more of? Um, I
4: think. Um, well i did enjoy them yes i i i enjoyed them very much but um what i really like uh i think are more of the um, human stories um and uh, uh dramas that that touch us uh, films like the miracle worker mm. um, you know or miracle at midnight i was very big on miracle movies for disney um uh, there's a yeah as a matter of fact there, there are a couple of projects i'm going to get around to releasing there's a wonderful movie i did for um abc called the three kings not to be confused with the motion picture of the same title it's a christmas story mm-hmm. and it's really got a lot of heart i love heart
0: Now, going along, as you've done film scores, did you find that there are particular genres that you were more interested in that you found more musically sort of satisfying, or was it just really based on a project-by-project basis?
4: Well, when I was starting out, and, um, uh, uh, you know, I I would take whatever challenge was uh, presented to me. Presumably the people who hired me hired me because they thought I could bring something to their particular film. But I've always been big on melody and empathy. And um, for instance, in Shocker, um, I don't know if there's another Wes Craven film that has such empathy coming from the score for some of the characters, Mm -hmm. along with everything else that's going on there.
0: Now, when we getting to to Shocker, I was curious as to how you first, because I don't think you had done much in the way of a, a horror film uh, by the time Shocker came along. So no, I, was-
4: I, I turned them all down, actually. Oh, really? Uh, I, I, yeah, I remember my agent sent me out to, to see a slasher movie um, made by... I don't remember who made it, but I sat next to the filmmakers and and at the end of the screening i just said well gee this is really well done but why did you guys want to you know spend all that money making this kind of a movie why don't you do something worthwhile <laughs> my, my agent called me later in the day and he said hey bill you can say yes i want to do the movie you can say no i'm not interested but don't don't ask them why they made the movie <laughs> but i ran into west craven uh you know really through a side door Uh, Through Twilight Zone, Um, actually, after five years of pestering CBS, this past uh, March, uh, I was able to release the uh, Twilight Zone scores that I had done, which included one directed by Wes Craven called Her Pilgrim's Soul, and uh, that was a very romantic very uncharacteristic of Wes Craven, Mm -hmm. but he loved the score and he asked me to do Shocker and because he was Wes Craven and had a great reputation as a good filmmaker, um, I decided I would be happy to do it and it was also going to be a challenge uh, with an electronic uh, score and I was, you know, those were still relatively new for me Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I found them interesting.
0: So what would you describe your relationship with Wes like? What's, what was the give and take like between his ideas for how the music should sound and how you would g- work back and forth with him?
4: Well, uh, he was very easy to get along with during the, the process, very open. Uh, you know, it, he would come by occasionally to see what was happening, but um, I had a concept that I worked out with his sound design people or his. his well, it wasn't even called sound design in those days, It was just sound effects people, which was, you give me the sound effects, some of the major sound effects you're going to use in the movie, and I'll build them into the score. Oh, okay. So I took those um, samples, uh, I took those sound effects and sampled them, and I incorporated them into the score, and um, it was very unusual that I think the sound effects people didn't build their final tracks until they got the score because there was so much stuff that I already incorporated.
0: Now you said this was an electronic score. What kind of equipment were you working on back then?
4: Well, it was a totally electronic score, but my specialty was electronic or orchestral synthesis. You know, taking the technology that existed, and you know, uh, conceiving it orchestrally, mixing it, doing stereo spreads, and coming up with something that sounded like um, a real orchestra uh, mixed in with a lot of electronics. Mm-hmm. I had a uh, Prophet uh, T10, or T8, Mm -hmm. and um, I think I was still using a TX rack, Uh, but Roland samplers, I had a relationship with Roland, so you take a look at what was happening in 1989, and I had all of their latest equipment. Oh, okay. And uh, I think uh, their drum machine, which replaced the Linn drum machine. And uh, the string sounds came from samples um, from their sample libraries at the time. And They were actually quite good. And I think I also had some early Kurzweil instruments and Emu instruments.
0: Oh, okay. Now, did you, obviously, since Wes came to you and you'd worked with him before, you would have. Well, been... well
4: I never met him before. I scored something he did before, but that's normal, that's often the way it
0: is oh, in television. Oh, okay so did you were you involved in terms of developing the score while the film was in production, or did you do most of your work after the movie was already finished uh, filming uh,
4: no uh typically a composer is is brought in uh, not always but typically uh, after this the, the, the film is in, in a final edit or close to a fine cut
0: mm-hmm. did you find anything was it the film a uh, challenge to score in some ways? Because it's a very interesting mix of horror and some very comedic moments in it. It's a very sort of interesting mix, and then it becomes almost an action movie at some points. What what scenes stood out to you as being the most challenging to film, or what aspects of it were the most memorable or challenging to uh, score for?
4: Well, I'm going to answer that differently. I will tell you the, 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 the parts of the score that I like the most are the parts that connect us to our humanity. hmm and if you listen to the album, you'll find that uh, there are there are many such things. Even in the main title that's on the album, which was not used in the in the movie as a main title, mm-hmm. they used one of the songs.
0: I was actually that was another subject I wanted to bring up because this happens to a lot of composers and that they're brought in to score a movie, but at the same time there's going to be a lot of rock music either composed for the movie or source music being brought in to accentuate a lot of scenes and Shocker had a whole separate soundtrack that Desmond Child helped put together with a lot of the modern artists of the time were you uh, how much of that were you aware of was going on and were you involved in any way in the final mix of putting all that stuff together I was
4: completely aware of it, and I think I might have been involved in one or two of those tracks, but I don't recall. I do remember, maybe it was that I used a theme by Desmond and something um, mm-hmm. that they asked me to do. I don't really recall the details, but there was a little bit of uh, collaboration, but mostly it was very separate. I did the score, they did the songs.
0: And where is that something that you were disappointed by that you weren't going to do more music or was since it was that was the deal from the beginning it wasn't a problem for you no it was it was n-
4: n- no, no problem whatsoever i mean i did a number of scores particularly when i was at motown where i wrote all the all the songs as, as well as the uh, underscore uh but um no it was certainly not a problem
0: how long did you have to actually put the music together
4: I have no idea, <laughs> but uh, obviously enough time. Mm-hmm. And since I was playing every note of the score myself, it, it was not one of those scores. I mean, I, I've had to turn 100 minutes of music around in two weeks. Uh, oh, wow. With a ton of orchestrators, but uh, this, I'm, I'm sure I had at least four weeks.
0: Oh, okay. Maybe, maybe
4: more, but uh, probably not much more.
0: In the end, were you happy with what you came up with? Was Wes happy with it?
4: Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Everybody was thrilled.
0: Now the big shocker soundtrack that was initially released was just of the rock music uh, tracks and it didn't include any of your score. But I do remember that uh, Verez Saraband did put your score out sometime shortly thereafter, didn't they?
4: That's correct. Uh, initially it was re- released by Varez, and then they gave me the rights back to re-release it on my own label, which is what you'll find now if you uh, go online to iTunes or Amazon. It's on my label, New Gold Music LTD, which is distributing um, close to 50 albums.
0: Oh, okay. Was this score uh, a success for you in terms of did it lead to any other jobs or were there any other horror films that were ever offered to you as a result of it?
4: Well, horror films Mm -hmm. was not a genre that I was really ever interested in, so I never really pursued it. And I don't think I've done another genre film, although I've done films that certainly had um, some very uh, edgy moments in them. Mm -hmm. But, uh, no, Shocker stands alone in my career as the one genre film that, uh, that I've scored.
0: So, looking back on the experience of Shocker, what, is it something that has held up for you over the years? Do you think that that's one of the scores that you've done that you're you're consistently still proud of? And do people bring that one up to you on occasion?
4: Absolutely. Look at you. That's <laughs> <Well>, true. <laughs> Absolutely, that score is um, the epitome of that genre for me, mm-hmm. and also it was uh, the epitome of exploration. I mean, I pioneered, as you mentioned, uh, the use of electronic music. I'm the first person uh, to have recorded the score on a computer for film or television, directly sequenced, all that stuff. And it was fascinating to me. But these days, I'm, I'm much more interested sitting at a piano and just creating acoustic music right. and or- orchestral music. Um, uh, you know, I, 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 I've been there and I've, I've done that. And now the machines do so much that I've gone back to doing the things you still need real talent for. (laughs) Not that you didn't need real talent for the music that was produced, but today I will say there's so much uh, with the sample libraries and loops and things. uh, you, You know, there are a lot of people who love music who don't really have much really great, gifted melody or or speaking the language of music and they make music and the production sound quality is fabulous because everybody can buy great reverbs and signal processing gear today very inexpensively but the content uh, there's no substitute for the content and um, so uh, for my, my personal choices I've gone back to uh the gift of speaking the language of music in real time and and putting out these albums that I think are very emotionally connective. That's my key word these days, emotional connectivity. Mm -hmm. And I think all of my orchestral scores, and Shocker too, it's very emotionally connective, particularly for the kind of score it is. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Well, Mr. Goldstein, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about Shocker and uh, other aspects of your career today. I really enjoyed it, and I think the audience as well too. Thank you.
4: You're very welcome, Michael, it's my pleasure.
0: Well, we have reached the end of this commentary and I would like to give a special thanks to Jacques Haitken, Robert Engelman, and William Goldstein for taking time out of their very busy schedules to share their memories of their experiences involved in the making of Shocker. would also like to extend my gratitude to Private Island Tracks of Los Angeles, California, Clear Track Studios of Clearwater, Florida, and The Cutting Room in New York, New York for their recording services. I would also like to acknowledge the continued support of Cliff McMillan and Jeff Nelson of Shout Factory and also give a shout out to my producer Heather Buckley and also finally to Shocker's writer-director Wes Craven and his wife for their assistance and contributions to this project. Thanks to all of you out there for listening and we will see you on the next track. Bye-bye.